Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today is going to be a special uh, holiday season direct message. No interviews. As you know from last time, I'm holding off on scheduling or doing any interview shows until the turn of the new year, uh, in part to deal with some things in my personal life regarding my career trajectory, uh, making a transition at the moment, um, and I just want to make sure that everything goes smoothly, as smoothly as possible as far as that concerns. The other reason why uh, I'm discontinuing interviews for the time being uh, has to do with uh, taking some time away to focus on a trajectory that I'd like to go on with the show, making improvements to the show, as well as some other projects that are related to the show, uh, which will be forthcoming soon. So look out for those. I think you'll be very, very excited uh, for the things that we've got coming down the pipeline. Uh, not only are there going to be more podcasts, but there are going to be more videos, more interviews, of course, as well as uh, potentially some courses, uh, some uh, platforms of various kinds. I've got lots and lots of uh, very, very exciting things in the works. Um, so that reminds me, if you're not already, please sign up for our mailing list to get ongoing updates about the show, uh, as well as regular uh, just philosophical commentary and um, pieces of bits of information that you might find interesting or intellectually stimulating that I find here and there. Uh, you can do that over at agorapolitics.com, and uh, there's a nice little subscription box where you can sign up for our free mailing list there and continue to get all updates about the show so you don't have to wait for a new episode to learn about what it is that I'm up to. Oh, one more slight announcement. Um, people may have noticed, uh, no one said anything yet because they're overly polite, uh, that I pronounce the show as Agora Politics and not Agora or Agorism, right? Um, and uh, welcome to the Agora. Agora politics, maybe, is what it should be. Uh, and uh, the reason that it's pronounced that way is uh, because it's my show, and that's how it's pronounced. So uh, I'm just going to keep moving on from that, although I do know certain uptight academics and um, very precise types uh, might immediately be a little bit irked by that when they hear me do the little intro. Welcome to Agora politics. But uh, it sounds smoother that way. I like it that way. And that's the name of the show. It's not agropolitics. All right, so on to today's episode. You're all waiting to hear about it. Today we're going to talk about color revolutions, what they are, how they work, how they're used, and even how to fight against them. Color revolution is a term of art coined by Russian military strategists for talking about the way that the United States enacts regime change against governments it doesn't like. The goal of staging a color revolution is to create conditions suitable to have a pretext for military intervention on behalf of the people, either internally or externally, to get rid of the current regime. So named because protesting forces involved usually coalesce around a symbolic color of resistance, 
such as the Rose Revolution in Georgia in 2012, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2014, or the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan in 2005. It is a specific playbook for regime change, designed for a world in which the prospect of infinitely escalating mimetic violence must be off the table. The question then becomes, how does one facilitate a people's revolution, with minimal violence and cost? Color revolutions are a type of coup, but they are distinct from military coups, in that they are designed to appear as if they are bottom-up grassroots movements, and not, as in the case of places outside the United States, foreign interventionist plots. The stages of a color revolution are as follows. Aggravate and support financially and otherwise, including armament, anti-government protesters or rebels. At this stage, the aim is to inflame tensions within existing factions of the target country and increase polarization, hollowing out the timid center and evoking extremist groups like neo-Nazis or Islamic fundamentalists. It doesn't so much matter what the politics or particular aims of these groups are, or whether or not they're even necessarily aligned with the uh, aggressor. All that matters is that they are in opposition to the current regime and can be useful instruments for achieving the end of regime change. The point is to drive internal conflict to a boiling point, where use of force becomes the only way to quell the disorder, leading either to A, an increase of military activity to quash the protests, which is then used as a pretext for foreign intervention, or B, the internal security forces themselves turn against the regime and stage a traditional coup. This is the basic strategy. There is a set of common tactics employed to help achieve the end of regime change. These tactics are intentionally asymmetric and are tended to force the hand of the leader to employ lethal force against their own people. The tactics include delegitimization of civil war, using press and media narratives to denounce any use of force to quell the revolution and undermine the current regime's attempts at calming things down while also delegitimizing the threat posed by the insurrection. Targeting of urban areas. The core of the resistance movements should be distributed in densely populated cities where unrest is most economically and socially disruptive and it's easy to mobilize massive numbers of people in the streets. Use of human shields. By putting unarmed or even vulnerable people at the front of the line, the optics of using force looks terrible. This places the regime and its forces in a lose-lose position where they can let the agitators continue and look weak or break them up and look brutal, both to their citizens and the international community. Using religious values as a weapon. Take the already existing belief systems in place in the target culture and manipulate them, their doctrines, institutions, and leaders to serve your geopolitical aims. The general case of this is weaponization of ideology, which need not necessarily even be religious. This can be done with secular belief systems as well, as in the example of communism. Use of private military forces disguised as rebels. Implanting agent provocateurs within the interest groups and protests to conduct sabotage, incite violence, or even train rebel forces. Employing medieval methods of violence. 
This is use of things like Molotov cocktails, starting fires, throwing rocks, using household tools as weapons, basically committing sublethal or only sometimes lethal acts of violence uh, with more rudimentary weaponry in order to elicit a lethal response by the security forces with, well, with guns. Now that we've covered the core strategies and tactics of color revolutions, let's talk about defending against them. For starters, it's important to remember that a color revolution is primarily about exploiting existing vulnerabilities as opposed to using raw force. That is, to be susceptible, a regime must already be weak or have some blind spots. A color revolution cannot be successful without internal and external political miscalculations. A well-managed state will not easily be overcome by exacerbation of internal grievances or attempts at mass citizen mobilization because these vectors will simply be easily snuffed out by the security forces and the people will not complain because things are being well-managed. The success of a color revolution, even if by an adversary such as the United States, is always, at bottom, a failure of leadership. Nonetheless, if you find a nation is being targeted for a color revolution, there are some things you can do. Ideally, you've put them in place preemptively in order to successfully resist and eventually fend off the foreign attempt at overthrowing your regime. Reduce corruption. Without high levels of corruption in your ranks, it will be hard for the agitator to turn security forces against the incumbent regime and orders given are more likely to be followed, meaning the incidence of unintended escalation of violence and excessive use of force will be lower. Have strong functional government. This ties into the last point, but it is more about ensuring that citizens are satisfied with their government and trust it to carry out its most basic functions, enough so they fear the disruption that comes with change more than things staying the same. A strong government presence will also reinforce the idea that this is an orderly country under the rule of law, decreasing the likelihood that protests and other agitations will spark and take off. Counteract information influence. Crucial to the outside agitators inciting a color revolution on your turf is the weaponization of information technologies and narratives to inflame tensions, coordinate unrest, and spread discord. Disinformation, yes, but also more traditional modes of propaganda and influence may be employed against you. So a strong and well-organized countervailing information campaign will be necessary to both sort out fact from fiction and provide alternative narratives and arguments in favor of the regime. Remember, this is not yet an outright kinetic war, so the airwaves, phone lines, and cables must be utilized to the fullest extent so as to minimize violence. If you can get these three things right, then a color revolution isn't going to be a problem for you. But if any of these three things are weak or dysfunctional in your country, then you're going to be extremely vulnerable. And that means that you could be overthrown and it'll be game over. Now, I want to be clear, the United States is surely not the only country that's engaged in attempts at regime change or these kinds of activities. 
um, our Russian and Chinese counterparts, I'm sure, would like to get the kind of leaders and regimes in place that they would prefer as well in other countries. But this is a particular formula that has been employed by the United States and its various organs, such as the State Department and the CIA, in order to successfully get regime changes in countries around the world. Now, for anyone listening who thinks that this is an anti-United States broadcast or anything of the sort, I want to make something very, very clear, which is that as an American citizen, I'm naturally in favor of the United States. That doesn't mean, however, that I'm necessarily in favor of all the actions that it takes in terms of flexing its muscles overseas or gaining the kind of foreign influence that it would like to have in the world. And so, I think in the 21st century, it's going to be more important than ever that people understand these ideas and understand the new methods of war that are taking place in our generation of warfare, where with cameras everywhere and the rise of social media and the whole world connected through the internet, it's going to get harder and harder to conceal information, which means that use of violence on a massive scale, whether against your people or against someone else, is going to increasingly become unacceptable. The face of war is going to change. And you're going to see more of kind of information war and alternative methods like economic war uh, rising as the new methods for gaining geopolitical influence. I hope this has been a useful primer on color revolutions, what they are, and how to fight them. And I'll see you next time on Agora Politics.